The following program is part one of two parts, each 90 minutes long. There is support material available at this website, including quizzes, handouts, and lecture outlines for all presentations. Consult the UCTV programming guide for the date and time part two and other lectures in the series will be shown. It's a great pleasure for me to be here today. Uh, my name is Ali Harivandi, as uh, Judy mentioned. I work for the University of California Cooperative Extension, and I have worked for this uh, very, very great organization for 22 years, believe it or not. Uh, and uh, believe it or not, uh, Master Gardener's program is pretty much as old in this state. Uh, I remember in 1980 when I moved to California from Colorado, um, and of course at that time we had actually started Master Gardener's program in Colorado, and I was not involved, of course, I'd heard about this. Uh, but uh, when I came here the first year, I believe we had a couple of counties, including Alameda County, that's where uh, my headquarters is. They started a program, and I have been very, very, uh, and I'm very glad about it, a part of that uh, program since, uh, and I've enjoyed it almost every session I have taught. Uh, in addition to all the material you have received from us and the booklet and so on and so forth, there are a couple of very nice books in the market, uh, specifically related to lawn management. Um, they are uh, very well done. They have great photographs and pictures, step by step, what to do and, and what not to do for that matter. Pictures of diseases, insects, weeds, and things like that. Uh, one of them is by uh, Sunset Books, as you know, Sunset. They're called Lawns or Lawns and Ground Cover. It's the same thing, they just add ground covers to this one. And then an ortho book called All About Lawns. You probably have already seen it. Uh, if you want to, if you get a little bit more uh, serious about lawns, I think a copy of those uh, would be a good addition to, uh, to your library. And, and they are available in your office here too, by the way. You can uh, use them. I highly recommend them because uh, they're very inexpensive. I think they sell for $10. And uh, uh, anyways, they have done a very good job. There's another booklet for those of you who are into uh, uh, pest management of different type. There is a booklet which was put together by the American Phytopathological Society uh, called the Compendium of Turf Grass Diseases. All the turf grass diseases that occur here in this country anywhere, uh, uh, the information related to those is, uh, uh, is uh, uh, summarized in this plus many nice photographs which you can use to identify various diseases. Uh, this one again is available to you in the office here. You can uh, refer to that. We also have a booklet from University of California and a copy of this should be available to you here in your library but if you are interested you can purchase one for the price of $20 uh, entitled Turf Grass Pests. Uh, this booklet covers weeds, diseases, insects, nematodes, gophers, you name it. Uh, with nice photographs and so on. Again, uh, would be a good addition to your um, uh, library. All right, uh, lawns, turf grasses. Uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, everything I um, will be sharing with you today relate to home lawns, okay? Although principles are basically the same, whether you are maintaining a home lawn or a sports field or a, or a, a cemetery or a, a golf course or a croquet court, you know, soil water management is basically the same. But uh, 
Uh, there are other issues related uh, to managing those uh, sites uh, which we will not be covering today. Everything relates to home lawns. And the reason I mention that is that certain things that I recommend people do or do not do on their home lawns may not apply to an industrial uh, park or to a golf course or so. And the reason uh, that I don't talk about those because we are basically focusing on home lawns today. Which is a fact of life in this country as you all know that. Uh, lawns uh, aside from the uh, beauty, of course it depends how you look at it, uh, that provides to our urban uh, uh, settings uh, play major uh, roles functionally and economically for that matter. Uh, most of the surveys done in this country shows that having a manicured lawn around the house is the most important factor in selling that house as soon as you can. In fact, that's why usually when they build the houses, you have noticed the first thing they put around them is new sods, you know. Unfortunately, they don't prepare the soil and the sod usually die after six months, but uh, nevertheless, it makes everything look good. It's, it's a grass, the functional part of the landscape. You are not getting flowers or vegetables from it and so on and so forth. And that's why we don't even think about it. It is a part of landscape which kind of meant the rest of your plants together. It is where you have various activities and so on and so forth. Totally aside from that, uh, lawns uh, contribute quite a bit in, in modifying the climate in, in an urban setting. They reduce glare, they reduce pollution, they produce oxygen, all those things. And more importantly, they reduce erosion in urban settings. Um, as you probably know, grasses are the best plant material for erosion control. We'll talk about that a bit later. And, uh, and, and lawns around the homes, uh, although we don't think about that, uh, they play that major role. In fact, early uh, uh, settlers in this country actually, most of them came primarily from Northern Europe, uh, when they built their cabins someplace, uh, usually they, they, they were kind of familiar with how important some kind of a, a vegetation around a building is, some, some kind of a covering to reduce erosion, mud problem, dust problem and things like that. So they will build a cabin and usually the first thing they would do, they would go to the wild and find patches of grasses and uh, they will dig them out, kind of like sodding we do, and they would bring that lawn and put them around the house primarily for its functional purposes. Of course, gradually, as the society became more affluent here in other parts of the world, for that matter, now lawns play a major role as, as, as far as beautification is concerned or uh, being basically uh, an extension of our living room if it's the backyard lawn. Okay? In the last few years, however, because of some of the environmental concerns, uh, justifiably or not, people have uh, uh, been uh, getting mixed signals on whether to have a lawn or not to have a lawn, you're using too much water, not enough water, or, or you have pesticide problems, so on and so forth. So we have uh, seen uh, situations where people have taken the lawns out totally, or uh, they have replaced them with other plants. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that as long as you uh, use a little bit of uh, common sense and uh, taste for that matter. Uh, I really don't care what people do, but uh, I don't think many neighbors are very happy with that, uh, with that landscape in that neighborhood. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things that we have to uh, be uh, a little bit aware of. Uh, but in the backyard lawns, for most of us, uh, if you have raised uh, children or have pets, uh, whether you're parents or grandparents, or if you have nieces and nephews, you probably have noticed. A backyard lawn is really an extension of your living room, an extension of uh, the rest of your house. It's a place where um, 
Everybody goes, ooh, you know, they all want to have that. Um, or if you just want to have a nice game of uh, croquet or whatever, it's really your little parquet in the backyard, and no other vegetation really can provide what uh, uh, lawns do. It just happened that uh, all, almost all the lawns we have in, ca in California, in the United States for that matter, are um, planted to grasses for very very good reasons and that's why we are here today to learn about uh, uh, all those. Also, you know, artistically you can use them. You probably have noticed grasses have, you see more grass ornaments in, in flower shops. Have you noticed that? Especially in the spring. As you probably know, in some cultures, uh, 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 sprouting grasses uh, during their New Year's uh, day or New Year's uh, uh, activities uh, plays a major role, but I've seen actually a few of our uh, interior designers are uh, using grasses for uh, interior, uh, interior escaping uh, more than uh, uh, they did in the past. Okay, with that in mind, let's learn about grasses. See what grasses are and why we use them for lawn purposes and uh, again why they have become so uh, widespread. Regardless of what publicity you get, people will always have them because they have certain characteristics which are lacking in other plants, okay? Or they are not, uh, they don't, other plants may not provide what we get from our, uh, our grasses. Okay, you all know that uh, uh, in universe, or in, in, on Earth, I should say, all the living organisms are divided into two major kingdoms. I'm not talking about Jordan or Great Britain or anything like that. What are those two main kingdoms? Great, yes. And we all belong to which one of them? Animal kingdom. Okay, animal kingdom and plant kingdom. Okay. Within the plant kingdoms, as you know, probably we have different orders and classes and families and so on and so forth. But there are two main divisions within the plant kingdoms. What are those? Anyone can tell me? Exactly, monocots and dicots. You know, pretty much every plant you see you can put within one of those two categories, with the exception of a few others. Um, it just happened that 98% of plants, could be 95, it could be 99, but you know, you know what I'm talking about. A major, big portion of plants you deal with in home gardenings belong to which one of those groups? Dicots all the flowers pretty much, unless we're dealing with ornamental grasses, uh, vegetables, unless you're growing corn or wheat, uh, tr fruit trees, most, almost all of those are, are, are basically dicots and, and uh, they have certain characteristics that you're all very familiar with. All grasses belong to the monocot group and that is a group that uh, we usually don't talk about or don't deal with in gardening or horticulture because there are very few, although we use uh, uh, quite a bit of them, but in terms of the number of the species we use, there are very few. It's very important to understand the difference between those two groups uh, in order to provide an effective management or maintenance program for your lawns, which as I mentioned are all around here uh, grasses. There are a few lawns which may be planted to one other broadleaf or dicot. Anyone can tell me what that plant is? 
Dichondra, that's right, Dichondra. But there are very few of those. In fact, for all practical purposes, we don't really recommend them uh, for a, a actively used lawn because Dichondra cannot take traffic as much as uh, grasses do. And also, uh, if you have uh, wheat problems and so on, it's very difficult to deal with. In Southern California, people use it a little bit more because Dichondra is a warm season plant and is more uh, 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 adapted to those environments. Okay. So we have monocots, and those are all grasses, and see what, uh, what differences we can find between monocots and dicots. One of the major uh, differences uh, between dicots, which we also know as broadleaves, as you probably know, broadleaves, and uh, then grasses being monocots, the major, one of the major differences between two is their the root system. Almost all Almost, again, almost all the die cuts that you use in, in home gardening uh, have a, a main root, or we call them a tap root, as you all know that. Some of them are very big, like radish, uh, or like uh, 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 carrots for that matter. But they always have one main root, and then you have lateral roots coming out of those. You're all familiar with that. And quite often, if you try to pull them out, it's fairly easy, unless they're very old plants. You can just pull them out. You'll notice that a big portion of that main root comes out and a few hairy things hanging on it. And usually, you don't get much uh, soil out while you, for example, pull out your tomato plant. You all have done that. Have you recently tried to pull a grass out of your garden? What happens? Anybody can tell me? bunch of stuff, which is we call what? Soil. <laughs> We're gardeners, kind of. Bunch of dirt come up. You know. Okay, we call those soil, or more commonly known as dirt. Uh, you know, I've noticed, some of them are actually impossible to pull out. In fact, if you don't believe me, go back to your lawn, or your maybe your neighbor's lawn this afternoon, and try to pull some of that grass out of the soil. You won't be able to pull them out. Usually what happens, the leaves break off, you know. You can't take them out. Unless if you have you know, annual weeds like annual bluegrass or so on and very new, you pull them out, but you still take lots of soil out. The reason for that is because all grasses, again, almost all grasses, there are always exceptions. I want to make that very clear. So we're talking about the majority of them. Have a root system which we refer to as a fibrous root system. Fibrous. It's different than broadleaves because on all these grasses, when you pull them out, you can't find a main root or a tap root. There are many equal size, equal length, equal color, similar color, shape, uh, roots growing every which way, from which, of course, lateral roots are originating too. Okay? That's why grasses can provide such a uh, great uh, uh, stability to the soil. When you have many of those growing next to each other, all these roots are growing into each other, they hold the soil in place very tightly. And that's why when you try to pull it out, quite often you can't, and if you do, so much soil will come up. Now the same characteristics is very important if you are dealing with erosion control. That's why when Caltrans or any other uh, organization or groups who are dealing with building roads or buildings or whatever on the slopes, after everything is built, the first thing they do on the slopes is what? They either hydroseed or hydromulched or seeded with primarily grasses. You always add a few flowers to it too, but after a year or so, those flowers are gone. Uh, that is the main reason. 
Other plants, whether you are talking about clovers or ivy or anything like that, they do not provide that protection for the soil against wind and water erosion for that matter. Okay? So that is a very functional, uh, important, very important characteristics functionally for, for grasses in general. Grasses like dicots, they have leaves, they have stems, they have flowers, they produce fruit, which in this case they're seed, uh, and, and so on and so forth. All grasses have uh, a what we call a primary stem. When the seeds germinate, one stem grows up and that will be the primary stem and grows up. And if you uh, allow that stem to grow and you don't mow it or graze it, eventually that stem will end at a flower head and then eventually produce seed. And if it's an annual plant, it will die afterward. It's a perennial, just to stay there and do that over and over and over again. Okay. And of course, leaves are, uh, they have to have leaves because as you know, leaves on plants is where we have that green pigment, which is called what? Chlorophyll, which is extremely important for the normal growth and development of plants. Why? Why chlorophyll is so important? For photosynthesis. That's right. What is photosynthesis? Food production. That's right. Photosynthesis is a process by which plants using the chlorophyll can absorb the sun energy and cook that little soup which has water and nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium and sulfur and all those things use that energy cook it and make what? sugars, amino acids, protein and so on and that produces uh, growth for the plant and food for us too by the way in all those fruits and seeds and everything anyway so we have to have leaves but there's a major difference morphologically between grasses and Broadleaves. In fact, as a horticulturist, you should be able to tell by just looking at the plant whether that is a dicot or monocot. Uh, that plant over there is a real plant? I guess so, yeah. It is. I thought it was. Uh, is that a grass or a dicot? It's dicot. I think it's ivy, yeah. Uh, one of the easiest way to tell the difference between this and the uh, uh, grass is what? The shape of their leaves, isn't it? Okay, so you see this one is broad, so it's a broad leaf obviously. And uh, those guys are narrow, those are grasses. Is that the best way? Is that the only way to tell the difference? Faination, that's very important. Because you may have, I can't think of any right now, but you can, you can have broad leaf plants with long leaves. Uh, grasses I haven't seen with, with broad leaves but you can have the other way. The best way is to take one of those leaves and look at the leaves against the light and look at that venation. And the venation which also we refer to as vascular bundles as you all know that. On grasses they're all growing in a parallel fashion up and down. They are not connected to each other. On broad leaves when you look at them against the light you'll notice that these veins or vascular bundles are growing every which way and they are connected to each other at various uh, locations. So that's a very important uh, uh, thing to know and that's also important to know uh, for uh, weed control. Can, can someone tell me why we call this monocot or dicot by any chance? Well, what does monocot dicot mean? Here's a C, C is a Someone, some brave soul. Please, go ahead. Uh, monocot is a one seed leaf, dicot is a two seed leaf. Two seed leaf, okay. That's right. 
which basically means that if they have seeds, when the seeds germinate and sprout from the soil, if that plant is sprout with one leaf, that's a monocot, in most cases a grass, if they come out with two leaves, that is a dicot or broadleaf. The reason I mention this is because if, if for weed control especially, and if you are into using herbicides, at er very earlier stages, some of these pre-emergent herbicides can have uh, an early uh, stage uh, post-emergent activity too. So by just looking at the number of leaves or the type of weeds you have, uh, you may be able to, uh, to find uh, uh, more suitable herbicides to apply at those earlier stages. Whether you're dealing with grasses or other plants, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. Okay, so they have stems and they have uh, leaves and everything. How many of you have mowed a lawn before? I want to see. <laughs> Are you embarrassed if the hands are standing over here? That's why I always go down because I want to see all the fingers. And those of you who have never mowed a lawn, you have seen people mow lawns. I guess you know, we all have seen that. And most people mow their lawns once every uh, season. Uh, some do, but you know, once a week during the season, most people do it. Okay? Have you ever asked yourself, how come I can mow this grass once a week and keep these things keep coming up? You do the same thing once to your vegetable cars or a rose garden, you know what happens. <laughs> Have you asked yourself? What is the answer? Why, why? Tiller? Uh, always? Not necessarily. So if, if not tillers, what else? What is the main reason that you can do that? And that's the main reason we use grasses for lawns, by the way. Because they keep sprouting. When you cut them, they just continue to grow. You're just like clipping the end of the hair off. That's kind of the grass grows. It just keeps coming up. It's a good point. Why the hair come up when you... Because there's one little root. And it has a central stem. And they just kind of come up off of that. As long as you don't disturb that central stem, your grass is going to continue to grow. So every time you cut, then the stem at the bottom, for those of us who have them, by the way, uh, <laughs> the, uh, on the tip, then we get new growth coming up. Hmm. Genetically programmed to do that. Hmm. That's right. Let me ask you this. It's a good point. Uh, supposedly I'm an apple tree. Okay? A very happy apple tree. And I have a branch over here that you don't like for some reason. Are they growing too long? You get your shear and cut that branch at some point. Okay? And uh, that branch is gone, and supposedly the place that you cut that branch is about, say, uh, uh, five inches from the ground. All right? You come back five years from now and measure that distance, how much higher that point would be from the ground? In five years. Same place? It won't even go higher. It won't go higher. Would that branch keep growing at where you cut it? It all depends. <laughs> Everything depends. But from the point that you cut it, you're not going to get. Okay. So that's right. What's going to happen? Basically, yes, the height is going to stay the same because nothing is going to grow further from the point you cut it. Now, if you have latent buds, and most cases we have them below that, then you will get new branches growing. Okay. So that's what happened in diacons. Why? 
why that branch does not grow longer at the place you cut it? Meristem. Okay, tell me more. The meristematic tissue which is responsible for growth. That's a bunch of t cells that they can make cells just like themselves and therefore the branches grow longer are located where on broad leaves? Always on the tip. That's why when you go below the tip, depending on the type of plant, but when you go one inch below that, at that point, it, that's why it doesn't grow. Or the lateral bud. Or the lateral bud, yeah, but we're talking about... That's right. In fact, we have a different name for it. We don't, we don't call it apical meristem. We call it stem apex. And that is located right here. The most fundamental difference between grasses and uh, broadleaves. That that place, the meristematic tissue we call stem apex, is located right at or below the soil surface. That's why you can cut that grass over and over and over again. As long as that, that area, which by the way we refer to as the crown, crown of the plant grass, which is different than trees as you know. It's basically a piece of callus tissue which can produce all other grass parts. Roots, stems, rhizomes, stolons, most of the leaves, they all are produced from that area. As long as that crown is healthy, you will have a lawn. No matter how often you mow it, no matter how much you use it, it will come back up. But if you kill that, either due to too much traffic, that's why you know on a soccer field, most of you I'm pretty sure have probably children or grandchildren playing soccer, the area in front of the goal dies because people smash that area and as soon as the crown is gone, that's the end of that plant. In turf grass management, obviously, we want to do everything possible to not only protect that area, but allow a healthy environment for, for that area to produce more roots and stems and tillers. Somebody mentioned tillers. In addition to uh, the uh, uh, primary stem, when you mow that, depending on the type of the species, you may get secondary stems which are referred to as tillers. These are stems that come out of, again, of that crown area. <coughs> there are two other types of stems also in grasses. Not all grasses, but some of them have them. And the ones with those type of stems are known as runners or salt producing type of grasses. They can have either a stolon. Stolon is a, yeah, is a stem, pretty much like what is in a strawberry, that can grow on top of the soil and has the capability of producing roots and shoots. Shoot in turf grass means everything that grows above ground, by the way, stems and leaves and so on. Can produce roots and shoots at each node if your temperature and moisture is, is appropriate. And then there is another stem which is called rhizome. Rhizome, very similar to stolon. It just happened that this one has a, a likeness for, for, for darkness for that matter. Basically it has a good geotherapism. It grows underground, horizontally, and can produce roots and shoots at each node. Okay. Now, uh, grasses we use for home lawns can be among uh, any one of these three types. Some of them are bunch type grasses. Those are the ones with neither stolons nor rhizomes. Bunch type. 
Doesn't mean that they will always become bunchy. Bunch basically means that they're not right. It's not, it's not a negative uh, a term, you know. And of course, some have rhizomes. Those are, they have runners. A good example of that would be Kentucky bluegrass. Kentucky bluegrass is a rhizomatous plant, as well as Bermuda grass. How many of you have not seen or heard Bermuda grass before? <laughs> you all know what that is. You haven't? Really? All you Oh, yeah. <laughs> all right. It has rhizomes. That's why it's a creeper. It just happened that Bermuda grasses not only have rhizomes, they also have stolons. They can grow above ground, underground, they produce tillers, and most of the ones that you have in your garden, which is the common type, they can produce viable seeds too, by the way. And if you don't have it, your neighbor has it, you'll come. <laughs> you all know that. Okay, these are the two types that originally were people using to produce sod. Call them sod producers. But these days, uh, salt producers can make side other, uh, from any one of those. Now, bunch type grasses, some of the major grasses we are using right now, for example, tall fescue, or some of you have heard of uh, dwarf fescue, are bunch type grasses, which means that uh, they do not run, they do not spread much. So if supposedly this was a lawn a few years ago and you lost some grass here and there, that individual plant is not going to be able to grow and cover this area. Become bunchy. Although it will spread horizontally very, very slowly because of those tillers I was talking about. You know, every time you have a new tiller, you have a but the horizontal spreading is very, very slow. And if you have a lawn planted to a bunch type grass, tall fescue, perennial rye grass, you lose some grass for whatever reason, whether um, uh, you had a disease or traffic or it just happened that your dog liked that spot for that matter you uh, will not have that area filled in with that grass you have to either reseed it or resod it but if you're dealing with something like Kentucky bluegrass knowing that it has rhizomes as long as the dead area is not too large uh, you probably don't have to worry about it the grass will spread and will fill up those, uh, uh, those uh, bare areas or, of course, if you have a, a Bermuda grass, you don't have to worry about anything because it's going to grow everywhere, pretty much. Uh, zoysia grass, Bermuda grass, uh, uh, bent, creeping bent grass, which we don't recommend for home lawns anyways. These all have a stolons and a stolons and, and can just grow on the soil. And, of course, at each one of those nodes, they'll give you a new plant. We use that uh, as a mean of uh, reproducing or planting a lawn, by the way. If you want to have a Bermuda grass lawn, you don't have to sod the whole area. You can actually buy some sod, break them on in small pieces, and plug them. Maybe every foot or every three, two, two or three feet apart. Water the area and fertilize it. Gradually, those stolons and rhizomes will, will grow and fill in and uh, give you a, a lawn. The same thing you can do with zoysia grass or uh, buffalo grass. Uh, the same with uh, dichondra if you are into that, okay? That's the way it works, I guess. All right. Aside from the, this morphological variation among grasses, uh, we also divide our grasses based on their temperature requirements. Grasses are either cool season grasses or warm season grasses, cool or warm. Within the United States, obviously, uh, we can grow different species according to the climatic conditions. 
uh, Bermuda grass, for example, that is such a uh, lover of California, uh, if you grow them in Minnesota, it'll be an annual weed. It'll grow during the summer, first frost, it'll die. It's a warm season grass. You try to grow Kentucky bluegrass in southern part of Florida, it won't work. It will just, the heat is so hot, so intense for that grass. So we have different regions within the country, and of course within that we have microclimate and so on, uh, that uh, we can use certain grasses. It just happened for us in California, especially uh, Bay Area and Sacramento Valley and so on. We are what we refer to in a, a transitional zone area, transitional zone which means that we can actually grow both warm and cool season grasses. Now, unfortunately, sometimes during the year, the climate is not as suitable for any one of those. For example, for you here in the valley, during the summer, your Kentucky bluegrass and perennial ryegrasses are under heat stress. Although you can grow them and people have them, but they are under heat stress, drought stress, and that may predispose them to uh, other problems, such as disease infestation, or they can't recover from uh, traffic. And during the winter, our warm season grasses are dormant, they're asleep. They're not dead, but it's just too cold for them. So it makes it more interesting for us to grow lawns or grasses in California, especially along the coast and the valley. Uh, if you go to the mountains, a little bit different. Then you are really in a cool season climate. Uh, uh, but in the, uh, the entire uh, Central Valley and along the coast, from Marin County all the way to uh, San Diego, uh, we can grow any one of these grasses, although uh, uh, not all of them uh, are, are, are as, as easy to, to grow. Cool season grasses uh, are uh, here. They are some of the ones that we grow in California. I don't recommend all of those for home lawns. There are only three or four of them that are appropriate for a home lawn situation. But these are the ones with an optimum average temperature of about 60 to 75 degrees Fahrenheit. That is their optimum temperature. Soil temperature, 60 to 75. If the temperature drops below 60, 60 degrees, they will stop growing, and usually if the temperature drops to, uh, well, below freezing degree, 32 degrees Fahrenheit, they will go dormant. They will not die. Bluegrass, ryegrass, fescue, you can grow them in Colorado, and winters are very harsh, as you know that. But as soon as the soil freezes, or the temperature drops below freezing degree, they go dormant. Very much like Bermuda grass for us here. In the spring, as the temperature rises, they grow back up and and the same thing would go if you have a lawn in the mountains, in Sonora for that matter. Uh, or above Sonora probably, because there they don't, you may not get that cold every year. But as the temperature rises to above 75, 80 degrees, they, are, they will go under a, a heat stress and drought stress. Quite often heat and drought are somewhat correlated. If you have a bluegrass lawn in Sacramento during the summer, you probably would have to put more water on it, not necessarily because of it's just hot, well, obviously because it's hotter and the water evaporates faster, but also it's a way to reduce the heat stress to some extent. And accordingly, if you have an art grass which is more heat tolerant, but it gives you most of the attributes of um, Kentucky bluegrass, then it's probably a better grass for lawns. And here they are, there are about three or four of them that I'll give you the information on. 
Kentucky bluegrass definitely still is one of the uh, uh, best looking grasses we have for lawn purposes. In the past few years, however, it has received uh, some negative publicity because of water use or pesticides or so on, really unjustifiably. Uh, there is no doubt it is a little bit higher maintenance than some other grasses that I'll be talking about. But if right now you want to have a nice lawn, best lawn in, in the neighborhood, manicured, and if you can afford its maintenance time-wise and of course uh, other uh, 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 issues, then it will give you a very good looking lawn. You know. We do however recommend that if you want to go, uh, if you want to have a bluegrass lawn, try to add some of this grass, perennial ryegrass, to your mix. Perennial ryegrass, which looks very similar to Kentucky bluegrass, is more traffic tolerant. It's one of those grasses we recommend for a sports field, for example. Also, it is not as susceptible to some of the diseases that bluegrass is, is to. And when you mix them together, we have done research, we know if you mix bluegrass and ryegrass, and in that mix you have at least 15% perennial ryegrass, the chance of getting some of the major diseases in the summer, especially in the valley, is, uh, is reduced significantly. That's why most of the seed mixtures that you buy in nurseries or sod that you may buy, uh, you ask for bluegrass, they almost always have some perennial ryegrass in it. It's a good thing, there's nothing wrong with that. Perennial ryegrass also is a good grass for overseeding because it germinates very quickly, grows very fast, and give you a nice cover. It is also the best plant material for uh, Bermuda grass overseeding in winter. Those of you who have Bermuda lawns, uh, if you want to keep it green in the winter, you can overseed it with perennial ryegrass. But the grass that we highly recommend these days for home lawns in California most part of California is this one, tall fescue. Some of you have heard terminologies, uh, dwarf fescue, double dwarf fescue, miniature fescue, they're all tall fescue. It just happened that throughout the years people have developed some of these fescues which are grow a little bit slower, maybe a little bit darker color, then uh, they have come up with those terms. But they're all basically the same species and for all practical purposes all around the best plant material for a home lawn. Tall fescue is cool season grass, which means that it should stay green throughout the year. Some years, this year is one, this is a good example. If the temperature gets too low, you may see some semi-dormancy on tall fescues. You will see the tip of the leaves being a kind of a brown or, or yellowed a little bit, but it will not go dormant totally like Bermuda grass does. It is traffic tolerant, it is drought tolerant, it is the most heat tolerant of all the cool season grasses, and that is very important for you here in the valley during your summers. This grass will do much better than either blue or rye. Uh, it is generally more tolerant of diseases. Uh, insects don't bother it as much as they do others, and quite often you don't have wheat problems because the uh, tall fescue being a little bit coarser texture means that the leaves are a little bit wider. Um, even if you have a few weeds here and there, you don't really notice it as much. And sometimes, if you don't notice it, it's not there, you know, it's who cares, <laughs> don't worry about it. Sometimes people are feeling that they have a couple of dandelions here and there, a as though, you know, everybody's going to get cancer in their household or something. No, it's no big deal. 
cup of it. Don't worry about it. If it gets really bad, then you can do something about it. But it's very important to know that tall fescues, even the uh, dwarf types, generally are coarser. By coarse, by the way, this terminology you should be familiar with. When we are talking about coarse or fine in turf grass terminologies, it refers to the width of the leaves. The narrower the leaves, the finer it is, a fine texture. And coarse textures are the one with wide leaves. Now, in terms of the feel, they may or may not be coarse, the way we think about coarse or soft, for that matter. It's basically the width of the leaves. The original tall fescues were actually fairly wide leaves. They were very much like many of the weeds that you have in your lawns these days, those wide leaf type, like Johnson grass or things like that. Because the original tall fescues were actually uh, uh, brought into to our market from pasture and range management. Fawn or Kentucky 31 or Alta fescue, these were basically pasture grasses with great drought tolerance and, and altogether a very good sturdy low maintenance type of a grass and 20 years ago people would, would use it and we used to recommend it only for non-used areas such as some of the uh, uh, some part some areas in parks where people don't use that much where you really don't didn't care much about the color and texture and things like that but within the past uh, I would say 20 years we have um, uh, improved when I say we I mean the turf grass scientists breeders Significant. In fact, these days, some of these tall fescues, for majority of people who are not in that business, uh, you can't tell the difference between tall fescues and some of the Kentucky bluegrasses. This adventure was one of the early, what we call the turf-type fescues, the early generation that came to the market. And even then, uh, you would have a, quite a bit of variation in texture. You see, this is tall fescue, that is bluegrass. If you have them grown next to each other, you can tell the leaves are a little bit coarser. But most of us don't have them like that. And you know, they're all together, and you can't tell the difference for most people. You know, it's no, no big deal. Uh, tall fescue is also, it's a very, uh, uh, you can use them for many different uh, sites. Uh, you can use them for home lawns very easily. You can use them for uh, parks, playgrounds, cemeteries, sports fields, and so on. Uh, that's why it's a very versatile type of a grass. Many of the sports fields uh, these days, especially school grounds or so on, where they don't have much money uh, to maintain, uh, uh, this grass being a fairly low maintenance grass, that's what, uh, uh, what we recommend. In the early uh, 80s, about 1983, where uh, you may recall we had a drought problem and so on and so forth, uh, I was interested to look at these fescues for, for Northern California. Again, at that time, we had only a few pasture time. I contacted all my uh, scientists, breeders, geneticists, uh, turf grass geneticists all over the country and asked them to send me any material they may have so we can test them for Northern California. And the most we came up with were about a dozen or so varieties. We planted those and we evaluated those for about three years and this was the first set of recommendation we came up with for um, tall fescues for Northern California, Bay Area and, and other areas. Um, and as you can see, if you look at Alta being one of the original ones, receiving a 5.5 ratings on a scale of 1 to 9, 9 being the best grass that no one ever has, and 1 being totally dead grass, actually some of those new grasses improved quite a bit. Names, you know, Jaguar, Olympic, Adventure, Apache, Falcon, Mustang, all these tough macho names because they were tough. They were drought tolerant, heat tolerant. 
hound dog. Can you imagine? <laughs> this guy was sitting there. What are we going to call it? We are going to top the other guy. Hound dog is a good name. You know? <laughs> Anyways, so since then, uh, that was the first. And by the way, in case you are interested to know how we do testing with grasses, I'm, you're all familiar with other plants and how they test them or evaluate them. It's very laborious, actually. We get these plant materials, they, we plant them on the same site with similar soil, climate, and so on and so forth, and we replicate them three times for the statistical analysis, as you know, we have to do that. We have plots of anywhere between 5 by 5 to 10 by 10, a small plot, depending on how much room we have or how many varieties we have. And then we grow this for three years at least, sometimes five years. On a monthly basis, we go there and look at those small plots. You see this one? is one grass and the one next to it. And we rate them for color, density, texture, disease activities, weed presence, and all those factors. And of course, as you can imagine, we generate millions of numbers. And at the end of the three years, mix all those numbers together, analyze them statistically, and come up with a list, which is uh, uh, our recommendation for, uh, for grasses. And since that, we have gone through another I would say four or five uh, variety testing, aside from uh, producing uh, information in a, a printed form, which I gave you. That yellow sheet I gave you, by the way, that is the result of the latest tall fescue variety trial we have just concluded last year. And if you notice, in one side, I've given you a little bit of information on how we have done our testing. On the back side, you have a list of, I believe, 131 varieties. Uh, think about it, for in 15 years we have gone from uh, about uh, 15 varieties. In fact, the new variety testing that I'll be doing will contain about 180 tall fescue varieties because it has become so popular. Anyways, that is our recommendation at this time, based on three years of evaluation. And uh, you just basically start from the top and go to the bottom and the first three varieties that you can find uh, is the one that, uh, that, that we recommend. Uh, but anyways, while we are doing uh, our testing, uh, we have a you know, research site in Santa Clara, and of course every year we have a field day and so on, and people are invited to come. And in fact, most of our Bay Area master gardeners quite often attend that, and we uh, extend that information to, uh, to people. See, I know what questions are. See, we are getting them. <laughs> um, good question. It's a very important one, which means that do, you, do we recommend uh, mixing various uh, grasses together or, uh, uh, or not? By the way, you want to be familiar with this terminology. A mixture is almost always, again in turf grass lingo, uh, mixture means you have two or more species mixed together. So if you have bluegrass and ryegrass mixed, or bluegrass and fescue mixed, that is a mixture. A blend, in general, means when you have two or more cultivars or varieties of the same species. Okay? And quite often you have a mixture of both of them. Now, in terms of mixtures, yeah, for example, the, uh, when I uh, uh, recommended mixing bluegrass and ryegrass, and I gave you the reason for that, we basically want to, if it's possible, if those species are compatible in terms of color, texture, growth habits, one of them will not outcompete the other one, and so on and so forth, we always recommend a mixture because we want to increase the genetic diversity as much as possible. In almost any population, as you increase genetic diversity, whether it is in grasses or animals or plants or people, it doesn't really make a difference. Genetic diversity increases 
overall tolerance to various stresses, whether it's heat, drought, disease infestation, uh, anything you can think of. That's why we uh, recommend that. The same thing goes for if you want to go with the same species, we at least recommend you mix three at least or more varieties together. So we'd have a blend. So if you want to go with tall fescue, which at this time, uh, in most cases, there is no reason to mix it with blue or ryegrass. If you go with tall fescue, we recommend you mix at least three varieties together. As an example, you have that list. If you want to find uh, a good mixture, you look at those, call your supplier. The first three varieties from the list that they carry, buy that and mix them together, and that will be your, your, uh, your, uh, your blend. <coughs> Again, to, to increase genetic diversity. Although they are the same species, but they are different. Yes? Almost almost all sods are blends of various varieties. Yeah. Al always. I'll be very surprised to find a sod which is, nobody does that. No. There's another grass that I know as soon as I show it, I was going to say, ah, oh, and ooh, and everything, because it has always happened, because it doesn't look like your normal grasses. And in fact, we don't recommend it for just your normal lawns. And those are, uh, general term I use, fine fescues. Fine fescues, or fine-leaved fescues, by the way. Fine here doesn't mean good. Fine means narrow leaves, kind of a hairy-looking leaves, okay? They are very closely related to tall fescue, but they look so different. One of them could be from Mars, and the other one from the moon, by the way. They don't look the same at all. Uh, in fact, this is uh, the way a, 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 a fine fescue lawn 100% will look like. Those of you who have spent some time in Washington area or in the Seattle area, along the coast of Washington, this grass is very well adapted. In fact, most of the lawns have are either all fine fescue or they have a very high percentage of fine fescue in them. They, they produce a very attractive lawn. Unfortunately for us in California, as a mono stand, which means that if you have only that grass alone, they don't provide the quality we want, especially during the summer. They are not heat tolerant as much as other grasses are, and therefore they always have kind of a brownish look on tip of the grass uh, during the summer. During the winter they look good. And they are, by the way, the most shade tolerant of all the grasses we have for northern part of the state. I believe you got the copy of the uh, uh, flyer entitled Managing Lawns in Shade. You'll notice that fine fescue is on top of it. So we don't really recommend it as a mono stand lawn unless you're in the mountains. You know, if you have a cabin in, uh, in the mountain, the Sierras, it does very well there. Um, low maintenance in general does not require much fertilizer and so on. Shade tolerant. But again, for over general purpose, uh, and the other thing is that traffic tolerance is not that great. So we don't recommend it. However, in almost all the seed mixtures you find in the market, especially if it says sun and shade, if you look at the list you'll see there will be some fine fescue in it. And if you, and, and in almost any home landscape, you always have a little bit of shade on your lawn. In most cases, you know. That's why we also recommend in your mixture, if you want to add a little bit of fine fescue, and by the way, there are several different varieties within that and uh, species. Fine fescue is a generic term. We have creeping red fescue, we have chewing fescue, 
We have sheep fescue. Uh, um, I think all of you know blue fescue. You all know that. Blue fescue, the one that's used for border planting, that is also a fine fescue. All of them with narrow leaves. But obviously blue fescue is not a long grass. It can't take traffic and, and so on. A few years ago, uh, again, I was plant, playing around with these uh, fine fescues to see if some of those varieties would be more suitable for us in California, primarily because they are drought tolerant and they are shade tolerance. Unfortunately, they really didn't produce an acceptable type of a lawn, and that's why we don't recommend them, unless if you mix it with other grasses. But one of those varieties, one of those species that I was playing around with, uh, exhibited a very interesting characteristic. Uh, this was one kind of a patch of it I had. We, we were mowing one half, and we let the other half just non-mow to see what would happen. And believe it or not, in a couple of years, it produced a very attractive, uh, what I call a grassy ground cover. And that specific species is called hard fescue. Hard fescue. Festuca longifolia is the name. Festuca longifolia. I want to write it down. Hard fescue. It is one of the fine fescues. And now we recommend it as a, again, not a lawn, but as a non-mode lawn or a non-mode grassy ground cover. It's a... Uh, uh, very much like those of you who have gone to the mountains, everybody has, or camped in the mountains. You know, once in a while you go, you find a patch of grass under the tree and it hasn't been mowed. It's very nice, dark green, not many seed hits. It's exactly like that. Does not produce too many seed hits, very few, very inc inconspicuous, and you can just leave it non mowed. And after doing some work with it, we have information on our various herbicides on it and so on and so forth. Right now we recommend it for that purpose. It is heavily used by uh, landscapers as well as the uh, highway departments or so on to revegetate some of these uh, uh, slopes. You can just see them, let them grow. It does require irrigation, however. It does require irrigation. I'll tell you all about it. Uh, but. Uh, 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 you can leave it under. Sometimes, if the soil is already, you know, can keep moisture for a long time, you really don't need to uh, irrigate it as much. On average, I would say that a stand like that, again, this is very average, I'm saying, and as long as you don't have a very steep slope, you probably would need about 50% water, 50% uh, of what you would need for a lawn in that area for that grass, okay? So it doesn't require as much water, but it needs irrigation. Uh, very small amount of fertilizer. It is again used in all these new developments in eastern part of Contra Costa, Alameda County, or some of I've seen them around here. People use it. Uh, low maintenance, uh, especially on very steep slopes. This is in LA area. Does very well, well in shade. It keeps the soil in place. You don't have to mow it. It's very kind of a natural looking type of a grass. Some of the golf courses have started using it for the rough area, by the way, of course, because it's non-mode. Of course, on golf. How many of you play golf, by the way? And some don't want to even say that I play golf, you know. Anyway, but all you have in the golf course, and the main problem we have with the grass in the golf course is that people lose their balls. <laughs> golf balls, I mean. Even. So uh, they have to look for that. Just want to make sure, you know. And that is the main problem. But it is, uh, this is in, for example, Orinda area, in Contra Costa County, you probably know this side. Uh, this is the entrance to this new uh, amusement park in Gilroy. The name of it starts with a B, but I forget. Bonfanti. Bonfanti, is that Bonfanti? Yeah. 
Anyways, uh, it actually does very well with, you know, good, I think. I have seen actually houses with that type of a landscape all around it. I don't have a picture with me. I don't believe I have it. In Davis, California. So it does very well. Hard fescue. I'll answer your questions, by the way. Let me finish this warm season thing, too. Okay, those were really all the cool season grasses that I feel comfortable recommending for home lawns. Okay? People can try out, and those are the main ones available anyway. So uh, uh, don't worry about all other two dozen cool season grasses we have in the country. Now, warm season grasses are the ones with an optimum average temperature of about 75 to 85 degrees. That is kind of a, the optimum temperature. When a temperature drops to below about 55, 60, they don't like that, depending on which, it depends on which, which species we are talking about. Go below 55, they will go dormant. They won't die, they will go dormant. Basically go to sleep, wait until it warms up. As long as the temperature stays above freezing, or the soil does not freeze, they are alive. They'll come back. And you all have experienced that with your Bermuda grass, you know that. First year people move from, sometimes we get called, uh, somebody has moved from, I don't know, Minnesota or something, and they buy a house in California, and that's the first time they have a lawn, and the first winter, all of a sudden, half of the lawn is dead. They get all panicked and call our master gardeners and so on, and uh, of course, uh, depending on how much experience you have, everybody thinks they have a disease or something. It is basically Bermuda grass going dormant. You know? So we have to really tell them all about it, and then they kind of, kind of calm down. It's not dead, it'll come back next spring, as you all have noticed that. But if the temperature drops below freezing, Bermuda grass will also die. So if you have a place in, in the mountains, you have Bermuda grass, as you may have noticed, or what, it's an annual plant. But they can take heat. I, uh, I uh, like to go and explore the desert quite a bit, because of my Norwegian background, by the way. Uh, but uh, I'm using Norwegian because I have lots of respect for them, because I assume you understand I'm not from Norway. Uh, but, uh, so uh, anyways, they go and, and explore the desert quite a bit. Uh, how many of you have been to uh, Death Valley National Monument? Boy, those of you who haven't gone, you miss a lot. Tell them, please. Especially in April, that's be that place is beautiful. But anyways, I don't know how many of you have been right in the middle of the valley. Well, not the salt flat, actually. There's nothing growing. But for example, in the... Uh, Devil's corn uh, cornfield or something like that. You can find Bermuda grass right there growing. Uh, it is extremely heat tolerant, salt tolerant, drought tolerant. It's a survivor. It's a survivor. That's why when you get in your house, <laughs> it's going to be there for a while. Believe me. No matter what you do. That is really one of those grasses that uh, I think uh, has uh, great potential. It, it has. Uh, some of you have it. You can get rid of it, might as well maintain it. Look at its positive aspect. And uh, we actually recommend it for uh, sports fields and so on, and I'll talk about those. And then there are a couple of other grasses that I want to talk about, zoysia grass and buffalo grass. The rest of them are really not uh, suitable as much for us in this area. Let's talk about Bermuda grass. Bermuda is a warm season grass, like all other ones. Uh, two main types of Bermuda grass we have. The one that you all have, and you did not plant, anyone actually planted Bermuda grass? You haven't done it. There's nothing wrong with that again, you know, I want to make sure. But what you have it is basically came in uh, either from the neighbor with your seed, it's basically weed you have it right now. 
And some of you may have it basically the entire lawn, maybe Bermuda grass. And, and especially if you have dogs or other activities, on, you'll find out that that's probably the best plant to have because it grows so vigorously and recover from all those injuries. All of those grasses, all those type of Bermudas are what we call common type. This is kind of a wild type Bermuda grass. It is uh, available uh, 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 in seed form. Not, no, not many people produce. I don't, to my knowledge, nobody produces common Bermuda sod. You know, there's no reason for it. They just buy the seed. It's <laughs> not going to be all much market for it. You know, uh, but uh, you can buy the seed. And fortunately, within the past 15 years, several very good quality common type Bermuda grass have come to the market. The first one was called. Sahara, New Mix Sahara was developed by a friend of mine, Dr. Arden Botzenberger from Las Cruces, New Mexico State University. So the name came New Mix Sahara. And then since then we have right now probably about 10 different common type Bermuda grasses, the seed of which is available. And they actually produce a very good stand of grass. The names are like Princes or Maharaji or Dunes, all these deserty names, they're all kind of strange. But anyways, they are available. They're darker color and they have more leaves and everything that what you have. If you have a Bermuda lawn and uh, you want to make it look better without changing it because you can't, probably the best thing you can do is to purchase some of these improved, tall, uh, improved Bermuda grass seeds and overseed your weedy type of Bermuda with these common types. The lawn would be darker color, would be more leafy, more leaf texture, altogether it would be a better looking lawn than what you may have, which again, if you have them, you don't like. If you like it, don't worry about it. The one which actually can produce the best looking lawn anywhere, as long as it's adapted to the, that climate, is, uh, is not common type, it's hybrid Bermuda grass. Hybrid Bermuda grass. There are several of them. And this one is available only in sod form. You can also plug them, by the way. But uh, there is no seed for through hybrids. There is no seed. There are some improved ones people call hybrid, but they are really not the typical hybrids. The reason is because being hybrids, they don't produce viable seeds. Most most uh, type of hybrids don't do that. Like mules, for that matter. Do mules? Can mules make babies? Yes? They're sterile. They're sterile. That's right, very much like that. But anyways, the bottom line is that now we'll always remember that hybrid Bermuda grass is a sterile, it's a hybrid, does not produce seed, and you have to always resod it. Sod is available. Many of the sod growers will get it for you. And again, if it is adapted, and, and it is very well adapted to the valley climate during the summer, and if you can afford its maintenance cost, it can give you the best looking lawn anywhere. In fact, those of you who have traveled in uh, Palmer Springs area, Arizona, Tucson, Phoenix, 98% of all the lawns you see there are uh, uh, planted to this hybrid Bermuda grass. Golf courses, home lawns, everything. The only problem is that it's a very high maintenance type of a grass. It requires more nitrogen than common Bermuda grass. It's uh, altogether. The main problem, uh, as far as the home lawn is concerned, is that I don't think you can keep up with the mowing. 
unless you are willing to mow your lawn once a day, <laughs> it probably won't work for you. Uh, it is a, it produces lots of thatch, and therefore it has to be mowed very, very frequently. Uh, the reason that your common Bermuda grass is so invasive, as I mentioned earlier, because it can produce those viable seeds, and of course they move around with wind and so on, and also it has a very extensive uh, stolen and uh, rhizome system. If you haven't seen that before, let me tell you that that can easily happen to your driveway or curves or so on if you have Bermuda grass. This is a road, this is Bermuda grass, and this was supposed to keep the Bermuda grass here with the name of a curb, you know, <laughs> concrete a few years ago. It didn't last long because all these stolons or rhizomes can go right into concrete. Slowly but surely, eventually they will go through. It's a very, uh, again, a very aggressively growing type of a plant. Bermuda grass goes dormant in winter. We all know that. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, there is nothing wrong with having patches of brown grass. It's a, it's a natural phenomenon. I mean, what is wrong with that? Uh, you know, it's amazing. During the winter, all these trees uh, dropping in the fall, dropping leaves and everything. Everybody looking, oh, how so romantic that is or so on. As soon as a patch of grass goes dormant, my God, what happened? Is that that's the end of the world, you know? It's a natural phenomenon. It goes dormant and it will come back up. If you don't like that, well, there are things you can do. Uh, the, uh, one of the problems with dormant Bermuda is that you will have lots of winter weeds showing up. So you have these patches of grass growing and so on. So if you don't like it, you want you, there are things to do. The easiest way is to uh, use turf dye. <laughs> believe it or not, believe it or not, we have every shade of green you can imagine. From blue-green all the way to gray-green, lime-green, any shade you will like. You can buy those, spray them on your grass, it will be nice and green. And you know what? Most people would, would never know. Uh, let me show you an example. Here we have Bermuda grass with some green grasses growing. Same Bermuda grass, sprayed with turf dye, everything nice and green. If that's not enough, go over it once more. It'll be okay. These are water-soluble dyes. They are not toxic. Uh, depending on how much water you put on and you know, how much you use it, uh, they will last you know, at least a month or so. In fact, those of you laughing, you know, how many of you have seen a sports being played on some uh, fields, grassy fields, in the middle of the winter in, I don't know, Minnesota or something? We all have seen that. Or golf, you know, all this green golf. You think that there's something trick to that? No, they're spreading with. No, it looks great. In fact, some of the other nice fields, they sometimes spray because it will look nicer on the TV ca TV uh, camera, like nice, nicer shot. So there's nothing wrong with that. This crowd is not into that. No, I can't sell it now. Darn it! Oh, I thought I just invested so much money and stock on these things. So. I'll, I'll get to that. So if you don't like it, there is a natural way to go about it. You can simply overseed your Bermuda grass or any other dormant grass you have with something which will stay green. And for all practical purposes, perennial ryegrass is the best plant material. In, in fall, if you want to do that, in first week of October, or last week of September, you know, mow the lawn as short as possible, dethatch it if there's plenty of thatch, 
and then uh, broadcast your perennial ryegrass on it, water it, fertilize it. Within a couple of weeks, the grass is going to be up, and within a month or so, you will have a nice green uh, lawn. Zoysia grass is another one which, uh, for all practical purposes, uh, I personally don't, don't recommend it, but it is available. Uh, you probably have seen the ads in your uh, Sunday papers. You probably have seen them. Somebody would send it to you from Arkansas or someplace or something. Uh, and, and they are available in the form of sod. Uh, very much like Bermuda grass. Probably a little bit better as far as invasiveness is concerned. They are not; they grow, don't grow as fast, and therefore they don't in, invade your garden as much. But they have the same problem: they go dormant. Dormancy is generally longer than Bermuda grass. And the other problem is that they produce a very thick mat, and the mowing is an issue. If you don't, you can't mow them often. Very quickly, the mat will develop so thick that every time you mow, you're scalping. You'll see that kind of a, a brownish thing. And, and as far as I'm concerned, you know, they say basically they say because it's drought tolerant or so on. Overall, uh, you are not going to get what, what you think you will get, and for that very reason, I don't really see any advantage uh, over uh, tall fescue. And again, here there are about 12 of them we were evaluating. In the middle of the winter, this is in San Jose, they're all dormant, yellow, as Bermuda grasses, very similar. In fact, dormancy is longer. There's another grass you probably have heard and seen and some of you may have called buffalo grass. It is a warm season grass. It's one of the uh, few native grasses to North America. It's native to the short grass prairie region, which would be east of the Rockies, Colorado, Nebraska, Iowa, you know, that all the way to uh, Canadian border and, and south to Mexico, that area. Extremely drought tolerant. Uh, they are available in the market. Uh, I again don't, uh, basically they sell them because it's drought tolerant. I, I really don't know if it will give you the type of lawn that, they never say what you will get, what it will look like. Oh, it's drought tolerant, oh great, Every, you know, but might as well don't plant anything. In the winter it's going to be dormant, very much like other ones. Here, here. This is all buffalo grass, the Bermuda grass, that is zoysia grass. Dormancy is longer and uh, even the best buffalo grasses we have available these days, they do not produce the type of quality people want, based on my experience. And you can get all those things from tall fescue, really, which will stay green all year. So for a normal lawn, especially a backyard, I think that tall fescue beats all of them. And the other problem with buffalo grass is that it can't take as much traffic as, as uh, tall fescue does. Now, of course, the question is always, which one of these is the best one? Well, you know, there is no best because uh, it all depends on what your conditions are. You have a copy of this publication, I believe. Do you? Did you get this one? Which is the best turf grass? And even if you don't have it, don't worry, because the chapter on the uh, garden book, I mean, the Master Gardener's Handbook, summarizes most of that information. Any question regarding to what we have thought? Yes? I'll ask you one that develops uh, patches in it. Uh, now I know why mine isn't filling in. Uh, so what do you have to do? I imagine that would be a common question since everybody's growing all fescue. So you yeah. have bare spots, so you have to go back and, and seed, and then what would you recommend overseeding with? A, a different blend or... Uh, generally for overseeding any lawn, unless you are doing like uh, high, uh, Bermuda grass overseeding for winter, other lawns, as long as you want to keep what you have, the best is to go 
as close as you can to what you already have. It is a blue ryegrass, I would go with a blue ryegrass mix. If it's bluegrass, I'll go with blue and, and rye because they mix together. But if it is indeed a tall fescue, you want to overseed again with tall fescue. If you know what you had to begin with and you can find it, which probably is impossible because this variety has changed that much. And they really don't change, I mean, they, in terms of uh, 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 visual, they are basically the same. I would recommend with a, you go with a blend of three of the, what you have on the list, you know, the first three you can find and your, your supplier has. And again, uh, one other thing I should mention is that garden centers, uh, nurseries, they don't have those varieties. In fact, you go and show it to them, they have no idea what those are, because that's not their job. Only places that carry those varieties individually are major seed suppliers. And they usually don't sell five or ten pounds. You have to buy 100, 200 pounds. So it's really more for professionals. Um, and, but the good thing is that most of the seed suppliers for the uh, consumer market, for homeowners, they, they look at that information because that is actually published uh, nationally uh, from a center we have in Biltsville, Maryland. And they mix varieties suitable to our climate based on the work we have done. So the easiest would be for you to go to a garden center, and go to their seed, and find the most expensive toughest you seed mix you can find. And I'm not kidding. The, you know, the price of the seed for a lawn is so small, you know, whether you spend $5 or $10. But the result you get would be much. Don't, on seed, don't go cheap. Hopefully none of the seed suppliers are here because all of them are going to add, you know. But that's really, you, you pay for what you get. So you will find a, um, several uh, companies do that. A three-way blend of tall fescue and use that for that specific site. How to go about it? Uh, timing is very important. The best time to do it, uh, well, right now would be probably middle of March when the temperature has gone up a little bit and the chance of rain is low so the soil is workable. You want to scratch at least the surface, kind of a till the soil the way you can. If you have a large area, it's kind of thinned all over, it might as well just redo the whole thing, you know. But if you have bare areas, uh, then you can get your rake, kind of loosen up that soil, add a little bit of organic matter, broadcast the seed, cover it with a little bit of organic matter, the seed does not dry up, put some fertilizer on and water it, and voila. By the end of March, you'll have uh, your area covered. Don't, uh, don't use too much traffic on it, obviously, until the grass is established. And uh, by the end of by mid-May, you'll have a nice lawn for the rest of the summer. Yes? I have the problem with the blue grass growing over the barriers and invading my flower beds. Like you are not the only one, by the way. Don't feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> Took all of my flowers out, put down for the side, and didn't put the flowers back in until in the fall. Hmm. I've gone out recently, and it's all. Bermuda grass. Yes. Yeah. Well, by now you should know why. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very difficult. Uh, first, the first thing I recommend, I think that uh, on the second page of your schedule, I see Clyde Elmore is going to be here talking about weeds. Grill him on that, okay? You know. <laughs> and if he says solarization, tell him, come on, give us some good answers. Because <laughs> but don't tell him that. Um, 
it is difficult, uh, primarily because it has so many different modes by which it can reproduce. For example, even if you were so effective on using your herbicide to get rid of all the stems, if there were some Bermuda grass seeds there, these herbicides don't affect those at all. And then they can come from other areas. So you really have to be very vigilant uh, about it and, and not one-time type of a deal. First of all, you have to realize that, I forget to mention, under ideal conditions, ideal conditions, which is not really our case, but you know, if everything is just fine, Bermuda grass roots can grow as deep as eight feet, okay? which is deeper than almost anything else you know of. Again, those are ideal. But in a home lawn situation, I can promise you that you go and check, you'll find those roots as at least three or four feet deep. Okay? Most of the herbicides that we have, especially the ones for the consumer market, they're so diluted. Uh, and the rate that they give you or something is kind of a scratch the surface a little bit. Um, you have to use a translocated material, and if you don't know this, Clyde will tell you all about those. These are the materials which are absorbed by the primary leaves, but the stems and roots, and translocate, move throughout the plants, and go to places where no other material has gone before, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> and kill the plant that way. And you have to do it over and over and over again. One thing that I have seen people, to some extent, are successful is to use a material like Roundup, uh, applied when Bermuda grass is growing vigorously. That would be August, September. Because remember, you want to apply these things when the juices are running. You know, if not, things are not going to move. And that is when Bermuda is growing. In fact, you want to water it, you want to fertilize it, let it really grow and be happy. Then zap apply the material two or three times and it may take the entire season for you to get rid of it and then uh, hopefully you will get rid of what you have there plant whatever you have and afterward just be vigilant you see something is sprouting either hand pull it or uh, you can actually spray individual plants or maybe get a, a little brush and brush on it and and just go from there and gradually you may uh, you may uh, the word eradication does not apply to Bermuda grass in case you were thinking about it yeah. There was a question here, yes? Yes, um, we had some Okay. Good point. I'm glad you asked that. The, the uh, comment was that this year we have had several frosts. Uh, I think that you probably have had more here than we did in the, uh, in the Bay Area. The temperatures I was giving you, those are really soil temperature. So the uh, frost uh, on the grass, especially when the grass is already dormant, has no effect, doesn't matter. As long as your soil does not freeze, it doesn't matter. And your soil hasn't frozen. Uh, now the frost may affect your cool season grasses, only if while the frost is on the leaves, you go and walk on it. It basically, because the, the, the tissue is so, Super, super cool for that matter, almost, almost frozen, you crush it, you know. Uh, but even that is not going to kill things, they, uh, they'll come back, but you may see a little bit of burning. But the effect on Bermuda grass, nothing, because soil is still not frozen. The most important aspect of lawn management is irrigation. I think you can say that about any plant for that matter, because obviously without water, nothing will grow. We all know that. But as far as turf is concerned, all other management practices that you do or don't do for that matter, 
fertilization, mowing, dethatching, aeration, and so on, they're all affected by how well you do your irrigation. How much water you apply, when you apply it, how you apply it, all those things are very important. Um, and we'll talk about those in, in a little bit more detail. The first question everybody has when we talk about lawns is that how much water should I put on my lawn? It's a very legitimate question. How much water a lawn needs? And my answer is always very easy to that. I really don't know. <laughs> Unless I know your area, your climate, your soil, it's impossible. I mean, we know, for example, cool season grasses need more water than warm season grasses. But the same cool season grass grown in Sacramento will need more water to grow normally than if it was grown in Oakland, California because of your climatic conditions. So really the amount of water needed, and I assume you're going to have a session on irrigation, or you may already have had it, and they'll talk about this in more detail, really depends on climatic condition. Very important to know. There is a term, you all have heard, ET, which stands for uh, extraterrestrial. ET <laughs> no. stands for evapotranspiration. That is a terminology that you as master gardeners or any person who does anything with plants should be familiar with because that is what we use to determine the amount of water needed by all plants if you really want to get into nitty gritties. And generally we have formulas and you know, we say ET or evapotranspiration of a grass can be determined by the evapotranspiration of the site, ETO, multiplied by a factor which varies between grasses. A KC, for example, will be for cool season and so on. Just don't worry about too much detail on that. I just want to give you a general idea of how we go about it. And ET is evapotranspiration. Everybody knows what evaporation is. Evaporation is when water molecules escape a body of water, whether it is a lake or a pool or, or a soil surface for that matter, into the atmosphere. Who can describe or define transpiration for me? What is transpiration? That's the plant giving off water. When the plant gives off water, then we call that transpiration. Very much like respiration, respiration for us, for that matter. Perspiration. All perspiration. That's why. Thank you. I said respiration. Uh, the uh, all the almost all the water, pretty much all the water that is used by plants is absorbed by the roots. You know, a little bit maybe by leaves and so on, but the majority by the roots. The water moves through the plant from the roots into the stems and eventually ends up at leaves and at the same time they carry uh, all the nutrients with them and, and leave them there and then eventually eventually, at least 97% of all that water moves into the atmosphere through those little holes on the leaves we call what? Stomata. Okay. When that water leaves the plant through a stomata that is called transfer. And thank God for that. Can you imagine if we didn't have those stomata in the plants? You'll get up in the morning or in the middle of the night, you'll hear this boom, 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 boom. All the water will go, pressure will build up on the leaves and they will explode because they have to go someplace. But whoever made them, they knew they knew better than you and I. So they made those nice little holes. The water goes up, takes all the goodies with it, deposits it on the leaves because then chlorophyll is going to use that to make food and so on, and the water escapes. So if you have a stand of grass or any other plant for that matter, covering an area, if you can measure the evaporation, and transpiration through the plants, then you have the amount of water needed by that plant. Because if you replace that, the plant will be happy. Very simple. So easy to measure evaporation and transpiration, isn't it? 
Well, it's not that simple, but at least we can get an idea. And then, of course, it, both of those processes, like evaporation and transpiration, are affected by climatic condition. Uh, temperature plays a major role. The higher the temperature, the more transpiration and evaporation, as you know. Uh, solar radiation is very important. On sunny days, you lose more water from your lawn than a cloudy day, even if the temperature is exactly the same, by the way. It's very important. It has something to do with whether those stomatas are open or closed, by the way. Uh, on windy days, you lose more water because as the water molecules come up, the wind takes them away, make room for more water molecule to come up. On a humid day, you know, obviously a rainy day or a very foggy day, the evapotranspiration is very low because basically moisture is everywhere and you really don't get much evaporation or transpiration. So those are the factors to have in mind and accordingly, obviously, during the summer, you need more water for all plants and grasses are not exceptions. If you look at the water use by plants based on evapotranspiration, you'll have this very nice curve. You start from January, basically no evapotranspiration, unless if you have a sunny day and warms up like that. And then gradually as you move into the summer, it goes up and then the fall comes down in the winter. It's very important to have that in mind, especially those of you or whoever you are working with, they are on an automatic irrigation system. Most of us turn the automatic system controller on in about a month or so, because we start irrigating, and just leave it like that for the rest of the year. If you don't change it, and water demand is changing throughout the year, obviously, you're either over-irrigating or under-irrigating. If you're irrigating to satisfy the plants for this amount of water now, when it gets to July, you're not applying as much water. Or if you really have set it for that amount of water, you're wasting quite a bit of water here and there. And it's not only wasting water, which is the issue. Too much water or too little water would predispose the plant and uh, make it more susceptible to other stresses, disease, uh, weed invasion, traffic, heat, cold, and so on and so forth. That's why we want everybody in the state to install one of these in their backyards <laughs> and measure evapotranspiration. <laughs> I've been uh, lobbying for this for the past 22 years, and you know what? Not even one homeowner has listened to me. That's why we are wasting water so much. Obviously, I'm only joking. Uh, this is, in case you're wondering how we can measure evap ET for research purposes, we have diff different devices. That little tub, which has a specific dimension, has a very fancy name. The name of that thing is, write it down, it's very important. Weather Bureau, it's from Weather Bureau, Class A, it's not Class B or C or anything, Class A, evaporation above ground, it's not underground, evaporation pan, okay? And that's very important, you have to know that. Basically, we fill it up with water, and every day at about 12 o'clock, somebody goes and uses a hook gauge, put them on this little cylinder, and measure how many millimeters of water we have lost in the past 24 hours, okay? It's very manually, of course, there's an automated system that can do the same thing. If we do that, at the end of the week, we add them all up, and we call this water budget method, by the way. We add them all up. At the end of the week, you end up with, say, two inches of water loss. You return that amount of water next week. Plants are happy. Everybody is happy. No problem.
The preceding program was part one of two parts, each 90 minutes long. There is support material available at this website, including quizzes, handouts, and lecture outlines for all presentations. Consult the UCTV programming guide for the date and time part two and other lectures in the series will be shown. It's the Definitive Guide to Gardening, produced by the University of California. The California Master Gardener Handbook contains over 700 pages of in-depth information on topics such as selecting varieties, planting, growth cycles, pruning, irrigation, and harvesting. The California Master Gardener Handbook is available along with other gardening publications on the ANR Catalog website at anrcatalog.ucdavis.edu.